Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. I want to share the third and final part of the series on gift exchange. Next Sunday, we'll worship together, um, but next Sunday, we're going to take some time during our service to just offer prayer to all the individuals and families of the church, anybody who would welcome us praying over you. We just want to pray a prayer of thanksgiving over something awesome God did in your life this last year, or maybe pray a prayer of just bringing a need to the Lord, something that as you're looking ahead to the beginning of next year, something that you'd like to just invite God's leadership into your life for, and then we're going to receive communion together. So next Sunday, just a real family, kind of a family uh, family day, family experience together. I want to wrap this series up today. Uh, I titled this sermon, Getting the Better End of the Deal. How many of you like to get the better end of the deal? Okay. Oh, yeah, someone said, of course, which is the right answer, because the, the other alternative is you got the worst end of the deal, and who really wants that? Not me. Right, getting the better end of the deal. We're going to look into the book of Isaiah today, just briefly. Isaiah chapter 61. Is that in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Old Testament. Okay. Um, who wrote the book of Isaiah? You're on it today, boy. Isaiah wrote it, right? Who did he write it to? People, correct. We can be a little more specific. <laughs> the people of what country? What nation? Israel. Isaiah was a prophet, and Isaiah, as a piece of literature, is called prophetic literature. One of the cool things about the Bible is that it's, it's composed of 66 individual books written by a little more than 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents with authors who didn't sit down and try and map out the book together, and yet it tells a complete story from beginning to end. There's no other book like it. And of these 66 books, there's all different kinds of literature. Like if you walked into a Barnes & Nobles today, the store is arranged usually by the type of literature, nonfiction, fiction, and then by topic, business, or children's literature, or poetry, or research. or There's all kinds of different categories that you can kind of organize your wanderings into something. The Bible has many different kinds of literature. There's stories, we call it narrative. There's law. There's poetry. There are epistles or letters. And then there's this stuff, which is prophetic. And every different kind of literature, some, some of us gravitate to some kind, some of us love poetry. And there's others of us like me that I feel like I'm just not smart enough to understand what they're talking about all the time. Um, and so I naturally gravitate in life to the stories in the history section. And the Bible has books that are pretty much all history and some that are pretty much all stories. Isaiah is prophetic literature. And to be honest, it's a book that's more on the more intimidating side for me. But I felt God uh, in our, through our Bible study discussion this last Wednesday night, which if you've not been able to participate, you're missing out. Wednesday nights are awesome. And I would love for you to be able to come and, and join with us on a Wednesday night. This is a great Wednesday night to come because we're, we're bringing back our staff Christmas beverage competition. And so we will have samples of things for you uh, uh, to try before the service, but uh, we were talking Bible study, and, and an idea came up from somebody in the discussion that I tried this week, and so I feel God inviting me back into the book of Isaiah again, and so I've started studying it again on my own this week. I'm not to chapter 61, but I did study chapter 61. Here's just the little bit you need to know about Isaiah today. Isaiah wrote on behalf of God. God told him some things and showed him some things and he wrote it all down and he read it to the nation of Israel and it starts off as pretty bad news. He levels with them. He just gives them the truth. He basically says, you've been sinning against God and you know you have and he's given you lots of time to get your life together and you've blown him off and now you're at the point of no return. And so judgment is coming from God. He's gonna deal with your sin. That's a heavy conversation to have to hear. And he uses this illustration. I'm going to summarize my own words. He says, you're like a big tree. And under, Dave, under King David, you as a nation grew up into this big tree. But because you've walked away from me, I'm going to use two other empires, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God's going to send these two empires to cut down the tree. The Assyrians are going to come first, and they're going to be partially successful. And the Babylonians are going to come along, and they're going to completely 
wipe you out. They're going to destroy the temple, destroy the city. Many people are going to die. He's going to carry you off into captivity. There's only going to be a little tree stump left. And if the story's not bad enough, he says, and they're going to burn the tree stump. You're going to have a burnt tree stump left over. That's going to be Israel. And aren't you glad the story didn't go the end at that part? It'll be like, just don't even tell me the story. If it ends that way, I'd rather just live in ignorance. But the second part, or like the second third, after chapter 39, it changes a little bit, and he starts giving them hope that that's not the end of the story. And God showed him that picture of a burnt tree stump, and he says, he says but God's showing me he's going to send a brand new king. And he says, I see growing up out of the tree stump a new little shoot that comes from a holy seed. And it's going to grow up out of that old burnt tree stump, which mean, which represented the old kingdom of Israel under King David and King Solomon and those who came thereafter. He says, I see this new tree, and it's going to be led by a new king, and it's going to grow into this great big tree and be everything God ever meant it to be, and all the promises and all the blessings are going to be fulfilled, and all the nations will be able to live under this tree, under this new king. And he even goes as far as saying, here's what to look for. The new king's name will be Emmanuel. Now, have you heard that name before? Emmanuel means what? God with us. And who is Emmanuel? So here's what he's saying for us having the benefit of some history to see this play out, that Israel, as it was, was going to be conquered by these invading empires. And did that happen historically? Yes, it did. They were going to be carried off into exile. Yes, that happened. But that God would rebuild the kingdom. He would bring them back under new leadership when that new leadership in the form of Emmanuel would enter the world. And that happened too. And so he gives them hope and he gives us hope and things to look for. And what he says is there's a new economy. This new king is going to offer some exchanges in his new kingdom that you don't have now. He's going to have a better exchange rate, almost like he's going to have kind of a crude example. Almost like you walk into Target or something, I've got the customer service counter set up and they've got people standing behind the counter and you can bring in something and put it on the counter of yours and they will take it and give you something different or something the same but better in return. What he's saying is this new king, Emmanuel, is going to offer you some exchanges. You can bring some things of yours and give them to Emmanuel and he will take them from you and not give them back, but he will give you He'll make an exchange, a trade. He'll give you something else. He'll actually give you something better. And so I want you to just listen into these three verses of Isaiah writing out how this works. And I want you to listen in. He, he gives a couple ideas of, like, if you imagine there's going to be like a sign at the exchange counter, he's going to, one column is going to say, here's what you bring in. If you trade this in, this is what you get in return. I want you to listen in for it. Beginning of Isaiah chapter 61, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. The first verse should be familiar if you've read the Gospels. Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. Do you know somebody else quoted that in the New Testament? and then use it to describe themselves. Jesus did this. So isn't it cool that, you know, a long time before Jesus came around, Isaiah laid the groundwork for what we could look for in Emmanuel. Verse 2, he has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. Here's what he's saying. He's also saying, all the tears that the people in you know, the Israel in the future will shed over the Assyrians and the Babylonians just massacring their people and carrying them off, those tears will be dried up and God will keep good track of the people who did them wrong and God's anger will rise against them. I want you to know God keeps good track of people who do you wrong so you don't have to keep track of it, okay? Verse three, to all who mourn in Israel, listen for the exchange, he will give a crown of beauty, in exchange for ashes, a joyous blessing in exchange for mourning, festive praise in exchange for despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oak trees that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Now, this is awesome. Did you hear a couple of the exchanges? What are some things that in the new kingdom under Emmanuel you can give to the king? What's, what's something you read in there? What's something we just talked about? What's Yes, you can give him ashes 
and you get a crown of beauty. Now, where would you find ashes if you wanted to go out and get a bucket of them to give Jesus today? Yeah, some, yeah exactly. Where something burnt down. We're not even talking about coals, because if you own a Dutch oven, coals are fantastic, right? Ashes are those just that debris and dust that's like charred all black, and it really stains. Have you ever gotten any on your fingers? Have your kids gotten it on their shoes and their coats and then tracked it all through your house? Okay, that, maybe that's just me. But uh, yeah, ashes, that's what those mean to us. It's the remains of, you know, like if you've really, have you ever felt like, man, I just set fire to this whole thing in my life. I have just burnt my life down to ashes, right? What did ashes represent in the Old Testament? What did they use ashes for? It was part of the way they mourned. Have you ever heard the phrase sackcloth and ashes? So part of what Israel did is the way, when they knew that they sinned, they felt like they, part of their repenting for it means they needed to take on some type of punishment. And the way they punished themselves was they would exchange their clothes for sackcloth. It was this irritating, coarse fiber that was totally uncomfortable, would dig into your skin, would cause rashes, would be itchy. They would make themselves wear that because they felt they didn't even deserve to be comfortable sitting, standing, sleeping because of their sin. And what would they do with the ashes? Yeah, they put it on their heads, making themselves, they felt like they should be dirty, that they deserved to just be stained and reminded and to show everybody. It was a very public way of saying, we, our sins deserve punishment. We deserve not to be comfortable. We deserve to have to pay for our sins. And so this was what they assigned themselves. And isn't it, so to them, what do you think it sounds like when they said, Emmanuel, he won't let you wear your ashes. If you do wrong and you bring ashes to Emmanuel, it's saying, I've burnt something down in my life and I made a big mess. And he's saying, Emmanuel says, bring the ashes that you want to put on you, give them to him. And he will take them from you, and in exchange, what will he give you? A crown of beauty. Here's what he's saying. In this new kingdom, when you sin, you come to Emmanuel. And he will take from you what you deserve, and he will give you what you never deserved. He will clean you up. He says, you don't have to go around making yourself, I will clean you up. And you don't have to walk around punishing yourself for your sin because your punishment has been fulfilled in me. Isn't it a beautiful picture? You know that these are, and he mentioned some other things here. He'll give you blessing instead of mourning, praise instead of despair. Do you know that all through the Bible, there are different things you can bring to God and exchange them for something else? What are some of the other things you read about in the Bible that you can give to God in exchange for something? Say it again, pain, and what do you get in return? Health. How about, uh, let's see, some of Paul's letters. You can bring him, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And then the peace of God, which passes all, trans, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus. So here's one exchange. Bring me your anxiety. Bring me your worry. Here's the key. Put it on the counter and leave it there and I will give you peace in exchange. Because you understand in any exchange, you can't just turn in your worry to Jesus and take his peace and all your worry back and carry them both along with you. That doesn't work. You must, as the song says, I'm maybe the only one who knows it, take your burden to the cross and leave it there. What else? What else does he offer as exchanges? Yes, okay, repentance. You bring your repentance, he gives you forgiveness. I heard another one, rest. What do you have to bring to him to get rest? Yeah, I'm going to leave my labor with you and I'm going to take on rest. I wrote a couple others down. What about bringing your weakness to him? What do you get back? If you bring insecurity, he gives you boldness. You bring volatility, he gives you stability. You bring shame, he gives you confidence. There's joy, right? You bring tears and sorrow. He gives you joy unspeakable, full of glory. Yeah, we could probably go the next 20 minutes. You're starting to think, you understand this? Do you understand how lopsided those deals are? 
How can God do this? This is my question. What if a bank that you work for decides we're going to do loans like this? How long would they be in business? Not long. Why? You give like that, what's going what's to end up? Bankrupt. You're going to run out of stuff. Right? What if you just got real inspired this morning and said, you know what? I need to exchange like God does. I'm going to call everybody I know that's got a really lousy car, invite them to just leave it in my driveway and pick one of mine. And you're thinking, um, I would be the one taking the car to somebody else's house again. You can only do that for a few people. Because eventually you'd run out of resources. How can God offer us these kind of lopsided exchanges without going bankrupt, without going broke? How can he keep doing that? Well, the obvious answer is, well, God has unlimited resources of everything. That's correct. But can I also show you, it's not just a how, it's a who. Let me show you who God used to make these types of exchanges possible. We find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. We sing it out of a different translation. He became sin who knew no sin, so we might become his righteousness. Here's what it means. This is going to be a stretch for you, but it's easy for me. I want you to imagine Jesus wears vests. He and I walk very closely together, okay? I want you to imagine his vest is righteousness. This is what he is. This is what we wear or what he wears, okay? Imagine that we're all vest wearers. Big stretch for many of you. But you know what we wear? We wear sin. That's what we wear. Here's what this verse tells me. When Jesus went to the cross, he couldn't take his righteousness to the cross, So he took off his vest of righteousness because he was going to the cross to deal with sin. Well, he doesn't own a sin vest. He had to take on somebody else's. He had to trade with somebody. So you know what he did? He took your vest and your vest, your vest, your vest, my vest. He put all of our sin on him, all of them. And he exchanged us and he went to the cross and he paid the penalty For those, and you're thinking, well, that's kind of rude. He left us without a vest to wear. No, he didn't. He says, you know what? Why don't you put my vest on? You and I now, according to this verse, we get to wear righteousness, but not a righteousness that we bought, that we earned, that we created. We put on Jesus's righteousness. Do you see the exchange? He took our sin who had no sin, so that we could wear his righteousness, who have no righteousness. And if God is willing to make that great exchange with Jesus, that means we serve a God who's not concerned about, he must value this exchange rate differently than we do, because I look at that and I say, that's lopsided. I understand how I win. I totally don't understand how this is a good deal from God's perspective. I don't, because What did God give up ultimately in exchange for you? What did he give up? His one and only son. I've told you this before. I love this church, and I love you, and I sacrifice for you, and I'm happy to do it. It flows naturally out of my heart for you. However, there's probably some lines I would not cross for you. My wife and I have two boys, a nine-year-old and a four-year-old. We love them as parents love their own children. And that's different from the way that I love my congregation. And as much as I love you, I cannot imagine a scenario where I would exchange my son for you, either one of them, no matter what the day was going like. Because I love them differently, and I'm not sure if this is the right word. Do I love them more than you? Do I love them differently? I'm not sure. We don't need to go down that rabbit trail. And I'm stepping back from the table, and I'm saying... God had this opportunity for exchange. He had to give up his son, not even for the guarantee of me, but for the possibility of me. And in my eyes as a parent, that doesn't work because the love for this one is bigger than the love for this one. Do you know what this tells me? And I wish I had more time to preach this. It deserves its own service. 
God must love you and me exactly as much as he loves his own son. He loves you no less than Jesus, no more than Jesus. He loves you exactly as much as his own son. So from God's perspective, this made some kind of sense. He's giving up one son to get back billions of sons and daughters who he loves equally. Do you understand how much he loves you? I don't think you do. He loves you that much. Let me show you a couple things real quick. A couple things real quick, and then we're going to hear a real-life testimony of somebody who has recently experienced an amazing exchange from Jesus. Let me show you three things about how God's exchange is work. I had six. We cut it down to three because I like threes. Every, number one, every time you complete an exchange with God, you get something better. Every time you complete an exchange with God, you get what? Something better. Now, I had to think about this because I use the word every time. And every time you use every time, always and never, you got to be careful. Usually on a, on a multiple choice test or a true-false test, every time those words fall in there, you know it's, it's, it's a gotcha. But I think you can test this out through cover to cover here. And in the cover to cover of your life, that this is a true statement. Now, let's be honest. Some of us aren't at the other cover yet. And if you stop at any snapshot in life, you might say, I don't know that right now the exchange looks better. Here's what I know. Eventually and always, whatever you turn in, trade in, give up or give over to the Lord, he will return to you something better. I experienced this in re- the marvel of this in real life. I, I have a very small eBay store. Some of you know about this. Just a little side job that I have in um, I've tr- buy things and try and sell them for more than what I paid for them, which is not rocket science. It's, um, and one time I came into a pretty large supply of tools and, uh, you know, some of them I kept for myself cause I didn't have them. And some of them I thought I'll never use these. Let me resell them and, you know, make a little profit. And then the tools that I keep are kind of for free. So I'm testing some of the tools to make sure they work. There is a wrench, a cobalt wrench among the tools I wasn't familiar with because it was adjustable, but it was, on a, it was a spring-loaded button that allowed you to adjust, this, adjust it rather than a dial. And so I pressed the button down and tightened it and loosened it a few times to make sure that it works, wiped it down with some simple green, took pictures, listed it, sold it to a guy in Illinois for like eight bucks. Ship it out there. About a week and a half later, he sends me a message. He's like, Hey, I want to tell you, that wrench you sold me, it doesn't work. And in eBay sales, this is like the worst possible scenario because it's like, does it really not work? You're just trying to, it it just is what it is. But the guy was like, no, I'm I'm serious. I'll send you a video. I'll FaceTime with you. It just, and I said, okay, you know what? I'm I'm just going to take you at your word. I believe you. I'm thinking it's $8. It's not worth a negative review and everything else. I said, I'll just refund all of your money plus shipping. We'll be good. He said, oh, no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. Like, then why did you email me in the first place? He says, I, uh, I actually checked out Cobalt's return policy. And he said, you can bring back this tool without a receipt in any condition. And if it's not working, they will issue you a new one. Please don't go through your basement and take all the, uh, I've not tried this out for myself. And I'm like, I have my doubts. He's like, no, I'm going to go down to Lowe's today. I'll keep you posted. And if for some reason I'm mistaken, I'll, you know, we'll square up. I said, okay. Sure enough, like three weeks later, he messages me back. I went down to Lowe's with my broken tool that didn't work. I filled out some paperwork. I put it on the counter. They took that broken tool from me. And a couple weeks later, the nice delivery person brought a brand new one right to my front door. He's like, this is a great deal. I'm like, yeah, that's a great deal. I'm like, I've got a whole new strategy now. I'm just going to look for broken tools. <laughs> right now, I'm just kidding. But he had a really good day when he got that package. You understand you can bring your broken down, messy things to Jesus. And if you're willing to put them on the counter and let him to take those from you, he will give you better. He'll give you better. Second thing I know is in God's perspective, and this is the whole thing. This is of the three. This is the one I still haven't digested totally. Somehow in God's perspective, he thinks both he and I got the better end of this deal. This makes no sense to me. I had a friend who told me some years ago, um, you know, you've made a really good friend when both of you feel like you've got the better end of the deal. 
Interestingly enough, that person doesn't talk to me anymore. But no, no, no. You know you've made a really good friend when both of you feel like you got the better end of the deal. Now, not every relationship is like that. But I have friendships, and I hope you do too, where you feel like, where both of you, if you ask, you feel like, man, I've, I've got the better end of the deal in this friendship. I understand in all of these exchanges how I get the better end of the deal. I bring all my anxieties and worries and I leave them with God and he gives me peace back. I bring my burnt down, messed up life with all my sins and all my warts and all my issues. And I say to Jesus, I wanna, I'm done with this. I wanna leave this. And he says, here, let me give you new life, life to the full. I understand how I went out. I don't wanna go in the back room and see everything that he's collected over the course of a day. And yet, the Bible indicates to us that God loves to make these kinds of exchanges from us. He throws parties when he makes these exchanges. Haven't you read that that passage from the New Testament where he says, I tell you the truth, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 that that, that didn't leave the flock in the first place? That every time someone makes a decision to to receive God's free gift of salvation, that heaven rejoices every time they make this exchange. They take in a dead life and they give back a new life and they say, this is a good deal. And you're thinking, they're crazy. Every time God makes one of these exchanges, he feels like he gets the best end of the deal. And you're thinking, well, if I'm standing behind the counter, I'm not excited about this. Well, let me ask you a question. When you come up to the counter and you dump out all your stress and worry to God on the counter and he takes it, does he get stressed? Does he get your anxiety? What does he get out of the whole thing? You. You see, when I give God my stress, he doesn't get stressed, he gets me. When I give God my sin, he doesn't become evil. We become intimate. When I give God my insecurities, he doesn't wake up and think, oh my goodness, I just need the angels to come and have a team meeting and tell me how great I am. You know, he, I'm gonna post something on Instagram and get a lot of, now, I, I, he doesn't need that. When I give him my insecurity, he gets a confident, humble me who can now lift up my eyes to the hills to see where my help comes from. He loves you every bit as much exactly the same as Jesus, and he says, this is a great exchange because I get the garbage out of your life so that I can have my son back, so I can have my daughter back. In God's perspective, both he and I always get the better end of these exchanges. Glory be to God. I don't understand all that. I don't understand how he loves me like that. Maybe I can just, and you can just relax and let him love me that way because that kind of love transforms us. That kind of love values us. It's difficult to get stuck and just beating ourselves up when you feel Jesus come on your shoulder and say, stop beating up my friend, Phil. I've had to say this before when I hear people like really being hard on themselves. I'm like, stop. Stop being hard on my friend. You're my friend. Stop talking about yourself in a way that no one else talks about you but you. Adopt God's view of you and agree with it. Otherwise, it's like you're putting it on the counter and then you're taking it back and you're putting it on the counter and you're saying, I'm gonna bring you my worries, God. I'm gonna come back in two minutes to make sure you put it in the back. And if you didn't, I'm taking them back. And you and God are going, you know, you're taking worry back and giving him peace because every time you take your worry back, you gotta give back the new thing. I have peace, but now the more that I'm thinking about it, I really should be stressed, and I really probably should think about this and stay up all night because that's what worrying people do. And so I'm going to give my worry, I'm going to take my worry back, and you can keep your peace because you can't carry both the old and the new around. You you decide which one you want to carry, but you got to let it. You got to let it there because point number three, to complete an exchange with God, you must leave the old with him and then receive the new. When I was growing up, my dream job was, and you're thinking, pastor. No, absolutely not, it was not. It was to be, until I realized it wasn't a good paying job, I wanted to be the bat boy for a professional baseball team. I was like, they have the best job. They get to be in the dugout. They get to carry stuff around. They talk strategy. 
you know, and they had this really cool job. Whenever like one of the stars would like crack their bat or break their bat, they didn't even have to go get a new one. They could just stand there. Because, I mean, they make a lot of money, so just have them stand there and get the guy making $20 a game. The bat boy would just bring them a brand new one. And he'd take the one shattered old pieces, he'd take it away. And if he broke it on the next pitch, the bat boy would run out. It's like there was, there was like an inexhaustible supply of bats down there. And he'd just, every time he broke a bat, someone would bring him a new one. Never once have I seen a baseball player crack their wooden bat into a million pieces and wave the bat boy off. Just hold on a second and like just get up, you know, okay, this is the biggest piece that's left. And just stand up there with like just a little stubble of a bat handle. Why? Because they're not, for them to get the new one, they got to give up the old one. I want you to understand, you cannot come to God and say, I want a brand new life, but I don't want to give up my old one. You can't come to him and say, I want all of your peace, but I reserve the right to control my situation how I see fit. You can't come to God and, say, and, and demand that he give you the new while you keep the old. It doesn't work that way. Like if you go to Target to return that Christmas vest that someone bought for you because it has a big old stain on it and you're going to stand there in line with 30 other people, when you get up to the counter, you're going to put down that stained sweater. They're going to give you an unstained one in return and you're going to leave that stained one there. You don't take it home with you. You leave it there. And the new one, you don't just snap a picture of it and go home and show everybody about the new vest that you left at the store. You take it home. You put it on, you wear it. God needs you to leave the old with him. Then you must receive the new and you put it on and you wear it and you think it and you feel it and you imagine it. And when other people see it, you tell them who gave it to you and that you couldn't have done it on your own. And you use your life as a giant arrow to give thanks and attention to the God who not only gives great gifts, but makes awesome exchanges. Amen? I want you to hear a real-life story from Elaine. Elaine has lived out over the last 12 months of her life quite a journey with the Holy Spirit that began with her getting some very unexpected news and in need of an exchange, not only a physical exchange, but a need, uh, but an exchange in her her mind and in her imagination. And so I'm going to invite her to come. Let me get let me get uh, your your chair set up for you here, Miss Elaine. Will you welcome her as she comes? Here you are. And I want you to listen in. This is an amazing story that literally, I mean, even as of this past Tuesday, is just having more. Um, more revelation of, of, of God's true grace in your life. So Amen. please share with us. Thank you, Phil. Well, first of all, I just want to tell you, I'm not a public speaker, but I did ask for my sons to pray so that my butterflies would fly in formation. And they are. <laughs> I need to tell you that, first of all, I, I didn't deserve this. I didn't work for it. I... Um, I didn't earn it in any way, but I just received it. God is so good. He's good all the time. And when this whole thing started, I just had such a peace about it, and I just knew that somehow everything was going to be okay. It started the 6th of January with a visit to a dermatologist down in Florida. And I go every year, and he checked everything off, and everything was fine. But he said, is there anything else you want me to look at? And I said, well, I've got this lump in my scalp here above my ear. And it was about, it. I don't know where it came from or how long I had had it. I didn't feel it. I didn't know it was there. But it was about the size of a dime and about five dimes thick. He looked at it, and he said... I have to take a little biopsy of that and send it off to pathology. So he did. The next day, the very next day, he called me and he said, you're going to get a phone call from an oncologist right here in Naples, Florida, and I want you to make the first appointment you can make 
and get there to see this man because the biopsy showed tumor markers for breast cancer. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. Well, they went there that day. It was only took three days. It was the weekend, and then by Monday already, I was in his office. He spent two and a half hours with me. He went through everything that he could imagine, all my family history, all the cancer that's been in my family. And he said, well, we have a lot of work to do. He said, but um, first thing I want you to do is have a PET scan. So that was two days later. They took nine vials of blood. They sent two, to two different DNA places to see what family, you know, cancer and stuff would, if that would show up, if I had any of those markers that was a hereditary thing. But I had no one in my family that I knew of, as far back as I knew, that had breast cancer. But that's not always an indication, so they say. But at any rate, did all of that, had the PET scan, saw him two days later, and that point he said, well, there is something showing up in your right breast. So he said, you have stage four breast cancer. Well, I, I heard what he said, but I can't tell you that it upset me exactly because there was this thing deep in my spirit that I felt like everything is gonna be okay. Now I have one of my sons who said, mom, you're just in denial. I said, well, humor me. I don't think so. I really am trusting God that it is not what they say it is. And <clears throat> so, in fact, I'll go on with the story and you'll see. <laughs> and I told him they're going to have to prove it to me. Well, it, it, it was, you know, very involved with a lot of different doctor visits, even with a, a breast surgeon, uh, a lot of different scans, mammograms, MRIs, you name it, I had them all. And even at one point, they were sure, and I was convinced that they did see something in the right breast, and they were gonna go after it, get a biopsy. So they prepared me for that. And this whole time, I had such a peace, the peace that passes all understanding. I mean, I can't explain it with anything more than that, because I really did have this marvelous peace. It was, it was just so wonderful. I didn't worry. I had absolutely no fear, and I know now what it means when they say perfect love, God's perfect love casts out all fear, because in fact, it did. I know now that he just loves me so much, and I didn't realize that before, but it was such a revelation to me. And anyway, they prepped everything, and this was done under ultrasound imagery. So I could see the screen, where the, right in front of me. <laughs> so the doctor was putting in the, the xylocaine to numb the skin. And lo and behold, that little needle tip touched the side of this mass, and it disappeared right before our eyes. I have proof <laughs> of so many things. And it's, it's just so remarkable how God has handled this whole thing and what he did for me to give me the kind of peace that just carried me through. But that day when that thing disappeared, I laughed. I laughed my whole way home. <laughs> I couldn't. I was just so joyful. That just had to be the joy of the Lord. So meanwhile, they were trying to encourage me to take medication to get started quickly. And I said, well, I really, they wanted me to be in a, a study program. And to do that, I would have had to stay in Florida because they would require, you know, visits every few weeks and so forth. And I said, no, I really can't do that, but I'm going to find an oncologist at Hopkins. And I will have all of my papers and every, all the scans, all the tests, everything all sent down to Hopkins. So in the meanwhile, 
the um, the oncologist in in uh, Florida called together a tumor board of a multidisciplinary group of doctors to present my case. They all studied everything over, and mainly they hung up on the pathology. And they said, you know, she has to have stage four breast cancer because it has already moved and it's already metastasized. So that is stage four. So, you know, when the doctor, when the oncologist told me, I just, I didn't say it out loud to him, but I kept saying it in my heart and I said it to Tom as soon as we were out of, the, out of his office. Somehow I know that's just not true. <laughs> so, sure enough, as time went on, um, everything, all the records had been sent to Hopkins and so I made my visit as soon as we got back here to Maryland. And she also uh, decided that I had stage four breast cancer. But she wanted me to start medication, and I said, you know, I like the idea of more watchful waiting because these other doctors wanted me to repeat all of these tests and scans in six months, which would be July 1st. So she was amenable to that. She wrote all the orders. July came, I had all those tests done. They really still couldn't find the primary, but everybody insisted that, that, you know, you can even have breast cancer if you don't have the primary. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm still not taking that medicine. <laughs> so so um, she said, well, I do want to repeat the PET scan because that will be proof positive because if something lights up in there like it did before, then we know we do have the primary. So the PET scan was done Tuesday this week. By Wednesday afternoon, I already had the report, and there is nothing in that breast. <laughs> Praise God. And all, all the glory, all the glory goes to God. He is just so good. It's, and you know, I've done the exchange. <laughs> so many of the things that Phil said this morning are so true of what I went through and how the peace of God just carried me all the way through. And it was just so wonderful. I didn't lose one minute of sleep over this entire thing, even when they first told me, because I had that assurance that somehow this just isn't true. And sure enough, it wasn't true. <laughs> so I praise God and I give him all the glory. Take your time, take your time, no hurry. Does anybody have any questions for Elaine? Oh, oh goodness, yeah, keep going. That's a, oh, please sit back down and oh. tell that part of the story. Okay. <laughs> That's, that, thank you. Yes. I must say, since then, I've had a complete hip replacement, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, recuperating from that, but it really only took me like six weeks from the time that they did the surgery, and I was up and practically running. So, questions? About the, she asked, what about the, Not she a, said, what about the lump in your about head? About the lump in my, oh, that's right, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> Even before I left Florida, the lump in my head was disappearing. One of the last visits that I paid to the oncologist, when he looked at it, and he said, my, that really is diminishing. He even had his staff members come in because they had seen it. I have a picture of the before and the after. And this thing disappeared on its own. Nobody mm -hmm. touched it, nobody excised it. Even my own uh, doctor here in Maryland, my primary care said, so whatever happened to that thing? I said, well, it just disappeared. Yeah. And God's fingerprints Praise were it. all over it. So. Are there other questions? Yeah. Anybody? Yep. You can catch Elaine after service today or any of these Sundays. Thank you so much for sure. sharing that amazing testimony with us. Will you show your appreciation for Elaine? Take your time. It re that, yes, that is a bone of, and you have binders of evidence to, yeah, you do. I remember she came in on, uh, on a, she and Tom came in and just shared with our whole team um, one day and really went into a lot of the detail on 
how dire the diagnosis was and how that type of cancer behaves and what had stumped everybody was there was all of the the evidence and the markers and the readings and every time they got close to finding these things they just disappear right in front of their eyes and so I think it's cool God could have made those things disappear however he wanted to but he waited until he caught it on camera <laughs> so that everybody there could see it that's why God doesn't do miracles because he loves us God already loves us he does miracles to reveal himself to us to strengthen us and to reveal himself to people who doubt and so, you know, giving platform for Elaine to give God all the glory and the credit for what she experienced is entirely appropriate. And I love, there's two exchanges that happen in this story. One was an exchange of cancer for a clean bill of health. There's another exchange that happened before that. It was an exchange of all the associated stress and worry that God gave her in exchange for peace. It's not hard to find peace when you can manipulate the circumstance first. And a lot of our prayers go this way. God, change my circumstance so that I can relax. And there's nothing wrong with that prayer. But you know you can also pray this prayer. God, can you just advance me the peace now? regardless of whether I know what you're going to do with this circumstance, so that because you'd be able to deal with that circumstance much better if you had peace first. But a lot of times we think we can't get it until the other side of our circumstance. What if God gave it to you first? I had this very experience. Uh, uh, in fact, worship team, will you come back? And Brent, will you come to the, to the keyboard and, and just begin to play? Um, Totally unrelated story. The circumstances don't matter. It, was, it wasn't even, in the grand scheme of my life, it wasn't a big deal. It was just a nuisance. You ever had those? It's like, I know in the grand scheme of life, this is not a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10, but it is just irritating me right now. And it had been six months of irritation. And my prayers had been, God, just fix this situation so that I can finally just have peace. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to stress about it. And I kept praying that prayer, and there was no traction, no traction, no traction. It was just getting more irritating. And I remember it was not this past Friday, but the Friday previous. I got to, the, to my car door. I remember where I was. I wasn't in my prayer closet. I wasn't at the altar. I didn't have my prayer shawl on. I was totally outside in full view of everybody. And I just said to the Lord, I was like, God, I'm going to amend my prayers. Can you just release peace to me regardless of whether you fix this thing or not? I just need peace. That's really what I need. I said, I feel like you're leading me to pray a different way. Not that you'll change my circumstance to give me peace, but that you'll give me peace independent of my circumstances. Can I tell you, that's one of the fastest answers to a prayer I ever got. Literally from the time I opened the door and sat down and closed the door to my car, peace just washed over me. Just wash everything. I did not worry. I did not have anxiety. I did not daydream about it. And I was like, this is how I thought I could only feel after this was resolved. I'm telling you, it made no sense. And in a maybe a related story within 24 hours, he stepped in and resolved the whole thing. It had been six months of no traction. And finally, I just gave it over. And I just said, I, I would just like to live without this telling my face how to look without telling me what I daydream about, without telling me what I have to be constantly turning over in my mind while I'm mowing the grass and raking the leaves and doing the mundane things. It's always there. I'm tired of this thing being my companion. But I had to make a decision to put that on God's table and walk away. And even if he didn't look at it for five minutes, I had to keep saying, all right, right you know, you know, I left that right there. You work on that. I just left it there. I just left it there. What exchange is God offering that you need to take him up on this morning? He's waiting on you. What do you need to put in his hands today so that you can receive what's in his hands for you? Most importantly, are you ready to make the, the big exchange? You turn in your old life and you receive a new one. I hope you've heard from Jesus today. And in our first service, we had an awesome time of, uh, we had two people give their life to Jesus, make that exchange. It was wonderful. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me? First and foremost, are you ready today to put on the righteousness of Jesus and give over your life, to give up your life of living how you want for living how he wants? Are you ready to turn away from sin and receive 
holiness and forgiveness and grace and righteousness? Are you ready to stop chasing purpose and identity and and trying to come up with different things to inspire you with hope and receive from Jesus purpose, identity, and hope that is durable and eternal? If you're ready for that, all of heaven is ready for you. They're ready to release joy to you and joy in heaven. God loves you every bit as much as Jesus, and he's done all that he can do to bring you back into relationship with him. And now, now it's your turn to decide how you want to respond to that. If you're ready to exchange your life as it is now for his new life, I'm going to show you what that looks like. It just simply means admitting that you've sinned. It means putting your, confessing your belief in Jesus Christ. And it means surrendering to his leadership, his lordship in your life. And it involves a prayer of confession. And you can pray this prayer right now. I'll give you an example, and you can pray it for yourself right where you are. Dear Jesus, I'm ready to exchange my life as it is right now. And in return, I'm ready to receive eternal life, new life, life to the full that you're holding out and offering to me today. And so to that end, I admit that I'm a sinner and I've been living life my own way as I see fit, figuring out right and wrong as it feels best to me, chasing what makes me happy. I recognize that's just empty. That's the very definition of sin because I've been living life by my rules and ignoring yours. So today, I submit to you. I confess, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross in my place for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. You defeated death. And that I can have hope that you'll do the same thing for me when I put my hope and my trust in you. I choose today to surrender to you being the Lord. I am not the Lord. You're the Lord. And so I step off of the throne of my life and invite you to sit in its place. Holy Spirit, I welcome you to come and live inside of me right now. Bring all of the power of God along with you and change me from the inside out. Thank you, Jesus, for this awesome exchange in the form of a great gift of love through your son, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.